Would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel? Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. It's on page 985 in the copies of the New International Version that's in the pew. Different cultures have different ways of organizing relationships, and that's one of the reasons why I asked Trevor some of the questions that I did ask. And when we go to live in a different culture, we have to adapt to the way things are. Some of you who come from different parts of the world and worship with us here, you have had to adapt. And I'm sure it hasn't been easy getting used to some of our ways, but you're very gracious in the way in which you put up with us. The question I want to think about this morning is what are relationships like in the kingdom of heaven? What did Jesus have to say about how relationships should be ordered in the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven, as we've been looking at it over the last number of weeks, we know, is not simply about something up there in the sky. When Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, he's talking about life now lived under God's rule. Life now lived according to God's will and intention. Life now here lived according to God's will as it is done in heaven. So as people who follow Jesus Christ as Christians, our challenge, our responsibility is to think about what our lives should look like as members of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what I want us to think about as we come to Matthew chapter 18 this morning, because it seems that Matthew chapter 18 is essentially about this issue of the ordering of relationships in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18 is the fourth of five major blocks of Jesus' teaching that's recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, which sets out really the values of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 10, which sets out the issues of discipleship in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago, which is the parables that give us an insight into the workings of the kingdom of heaven. And now Matthew 18, which deals with relationships in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to do this in two exercises, one here this morning with you and one again this evening. And this morning to look at verses 1 to 20 and then this evening to look at verses 21 to 35. And I hope these exercises will help us grasp what the passage is about and how it should reshape our thinking about relationships in the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to think here this morning as if you were simply going somewhere else in the same way in which Trevor has gone to Russia. We're going to go somewhere else and hear about a place that does things slightly differently from the way we tend to do things of our own choice in Northern Ireland. I have a a list of the verses which will be on the screen. I've divided the passage up and as we read down through it, what I'd like you to do is think about one word that you would put against each of these sets of verses. Okay? So I'm going to read the passage. You can follow along with me. And as I read it, This is the way we're going to divide it up this morning. And I'd like you to think about one word that for you would help summarize what that verse or verses is actually saying. Okay? Matthew chapter 18. Let's read it together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, 
but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So what, would you, what one word would you use to summarize verses 2 and 4? You're only allowed one word. What would it be? Any offers? Change? Chosen? Any other? Humility? Thank you, Ruth, because that's the one I chose. <laughs> it's one of these things like, you know, what's the right answer? And you're not allowed to keep saying Jesus all the time. This is not Sunday school. <clears throat> these are the issues that are addressed here in this particular passage. We're not told that there's an argument going on, but we know the disciples often did argue about who was the greatest. Mark chapter 9, which is a parallel passage, sets us in that context. Even at the Last Supper, they were arguing about which was going to be the greatest. In verses 2 and 3, what is happening here is that Jesus is challenging attitudes, the attitudes that the disciples have by nature, natural things. And he's telling them that there needs to be change. So yes, change is very important. And he's saying you need to be changed or converted, as you could translate that. Because relationships in the kingdom of heaven are ordered differently from those in the world around you. There are very few societies in the world where status is unimportant. There are very few of us who don't honestly, truthfully consider some kind of status important. Sometimes we strive for it within our own sphere of influence. Sometimes we just drop names and conversations. Same thing. It's trying to suggest that we have some kind of status with somebody. And Jesus challenges that natural, universal tendency. So he takes a child, sets it in the middle of the disciples, or invites it into the middle of the disciples, and says, unless you convert and are changed and become like this child, you don't have any understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is about. Why a child? What's the significance here? Is it because of childlike characteristics, like trusting and humble and obedient and innocent? Well, I don't know what kind of child you were, but none of those terms adequately describe me as a child. And while they all look like little angels before they go out to junior church, I know they're not all little angels. It's not the qualities of children that Jesus is trying to use in this demonstration. That's not the issue here. It's the status of children that he's drawing attention to. The child in Jesus' day, amongst a group of men, would have had no status. 
A child was there to be looked after, but certainly not looked up to. Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, has written a series of commentaries, uh, which are very accessible things. And he has written some on Matthew's Gospel. And he has a very startling approach to the translation of this verse. He points out that most people indicate or, or explain to us that in the Greek, the word for child is neither male nor female. It's neuter. It. So Wright translates the text this way. Jesus called a child and stood her in the middle of them. Most translations you read will choose to make the child male. Wright chooses to make the child female because that seems to him to be a better interpretation of what is actually going on here and a better translation. Wright says, I have guessed that it was it was a girl, not least because a girl would make with special clarity the point Jesus was wanting to get into the disciples' minds, that the weakest, most vulnerable, least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of heaven will be like. The issue here is status. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who are least concerned about status. They needed the disciples to be converted from the cult of significance, and so do we, both in and out of the church. It's not insignificant that there are no titles afforded to people in the New Testament other than to Jesus as the Christ. There are lots of descriptive terms, but somehow or other, even in the life of the church, we have ended up with lots of titles, like reverends and fathers and bishops and pastors all of which are actually supposed to be, if anything, descriptive of what a person does. They're not actually titles, and they're not biblical. All the things we make into titles, like bishop, which means overseer, pastor, which simply means shepherd, have become status symbols. And I think that's wrong. All of us have different functions within the life of the church, but we share a common status, and status is actually irrelevant in the life of the kingdom of heaven. And the church meeting on Wednesday, there were no block votes when I put my hand up in a church meeting, it's one hand. Well, I might cheat and try and put another one up from time to time, but that would only be cheating. I don't have any right to have any more say than anybody else. And that's the way it should be. There are no block votes. There are no pastoral vetoes. Not because we're committed to democracy, but because as a community, we do not recognize a differentiation in status, difference in role, maybe in responsibility, but not in status. But these things are hard, and we need to change our attitudes. During the week, um, or last week, I was listening to a Methodist minister from the States who was over speaking to some people with the endearing name of Mike Slaughter, spelt as it sounds, who used this wonderful phrase that for him there has been one new birth, but many conversions. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. There are things that need to be converted in us. There is one new birth by the Spirit into Christ. But there are many conversions that are needed in our attitude and practice. So the kingdom of heaven is a community of sinners. The kingdom of heaven is a community where status doesn't matter. There is only one key personality, one person with status, and his name is Jesus. So the challenge, it seems to me this morning, as we think about the ordering of relationships within the kingdom of heaven, is how are we doing? How would you score yourself on this issue, how you think about it, on a score between 1 and 10? How would you score us as a church? Between 1 and 10. Somewhere on that scale. Have we any idea what we're doing in this field? Jesus thinks it's important. Verse 5. What word would you use for verse 5? Any suggestions? Any offers? Acceptance? Anything else? 
inclusive. Any others? I'll tell you what mine is in a minute. Don't worry. (laughs) Trying to capture both of those, but just using one of the words that's in the text, I simply use the word welcoming. And I've separated this verse out because I think it needs some, some thought. This verse is not about the role of children in the life of the church. The child is being used not because, as an illustration, not because of childlike characteristics, but because of status. And in verse 6, you're going to hear Jesus talking about little ones, and he's moving the concept along a little bit here. So therefore, he, the little ones that he refers to are not children, as you'll see in a minute. So the issue here is not about where children fit in in the kingdom of heaven as a group of human beings. The issue is about where people without status fit in the kingdom of heaven. That's essentially what's going on here. And that's what this issue of welcoming, being inclusive, accepting is all about. This is the kind of verse that I have to be truthful and say I'm suspicious of. I know you're not supposed to be suspicious of scripture. Well, truthfully, I'm more suspicious of the way it's used sometimes. You know, you get people who are all nice and touchy-feely. And they say things like, you know, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome the Christ in the stranger. And I'm going, where do you get that in the Bible? And I'm struggling with some of the language of it. And consequently, I don't want anything to do with some of this kind of language. But here it is. Very interesting. Here's the way Jesus puts it. Whoever welcomes a little child like this, whoever welcomes someone in our society, in our community, who has no status, the child was often associated along with or lumped in along with the deaf, the dumb, the weak-minded, as one commentator actually writes in his commentary about this. When we accept such people into the life of the church, into the community of the church, we are, Jesus says, when we do it in his name, welcoming him. So it really doesn't matter whether I like it or not, or what associations I have with this phrase. This is exactly what it's saying. Do you remember years ago the rumpus up in Limavati? At Christmas time, when one Presbyterian minister, I think, went across to give greetings to the folks in the Catholic Church. Some of you who weren't around then uh, or, or aren't from here won't, under, won't be familiar with this, but there was a whole riot about it. And there was a documentary done on it. And one of the questions that the, com- the person who was doing the documentary asked every minister of all the churches, they visited all the churches in the Mavadi that would agree to speak to them. And the last question he asked, which I thought was a really clever question, the last question he asked was, if Jesus were to visit Limavati, which church in Limavati would he worship in? Well, most ministers were answering that in the way I would answer it, which is, I have no idea. I think he'd probably have something to say about the fact that there are so many churches in Limavati. Well, there was one church where the minister said, this one. Watch the documentary. My question this morning is slightly different. If Jesus were to come into Windsor, how would he come? If Jesus were to come into Windsor this morning, how would he come? This part of me wants to think he would come like the portrayal of Jesus that I see in Revelation chapter 1. You know the mighty image, the awesome, inspiring image of burning gold and a sword and power and glory and light that would just be so overwhelming that there isn't any of us that would be left sitting on our seats. We'd be on the, face, on the floor on our faces just with the overwhelming power and glory. That's what I would like to think. Do you know what I really think? I think if Jesus was coming to Windsor this morning and if he was coming to see how we're doing in regard to the kingdom of heaven, I think he would come as the most ordinary weakest, insignificant person he could possibly disguise himself as. Because that would tell him more 
about whether we have really understood what he's been teaching us about the kingdom of heaven than if he came in power and in glory and overwhelmed us. The question it leaves me with is, would we pass the test? Would I pass the test? Would we welcome Jesus? Would we even notice Jesus? And in a sense, it's not really would we, it's do we? If relationships within the kingdom of heaven are supposed to be ordered so radically differently, do we? There's my little scale again, one to ten. How are we doing? How are you doing? Jesus might be sitting beside you, if you get my drift. In front of you, behind you. If you welcome the least of these, the most insignificant of people that you can think of, in my name, you welcome me. Verses 6 to 9. Very difficult to know what one word you would use in these, so I'm not going to ask for your suggestions because there would be loads of them. I've gone for one word, which may or may not make an awful lot of sense, but it's the word responsibility. It's generally agreed that there's a transition going on here where Jesus is taking the, the, the insignificant status of the child and he's playing it as he does in verse 5 to challenge the disciples about their attitude to the people around them because they were concerned. Do you remember earlier when uh, we were looking at this passage they came to Jesus um, in Matthew 17 was it? No, 16. And they said to Jesus about, you know, you've offended the Pharisees. Do you realize, Jesus, you offended them? And they, they were concerned about status, as we tend to be in our day and generation too. So this was something that they struggled with. And Jesus is, is bringing this child in, and he's emphasizing this whole business about you've got to change your thinking in this. It's not the people that the world says have status that matter. It's in the kingdom of heaven, relationships are ordered differently. So there's this transition going on to the use of this term, little ones, which sounds very like child, but is not exactly the same thing. Now, the disciples will recognize this because on chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 42, and chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus has already referred to them as the little ones. So they understand that Jesus is talking about them. So Jesus has moved seamlessly from one little girl who illustrates in her lack of status the significance of status in the kingdom of heaven to the whole community of disciples, the little ones. And that's who Jesus is concerned about in these verses from verse 6 to 9. It's interesting that in a society like ours where there is really very little moral base or basis, the word evil does creep up from time to time. It's produced and applied very quickly, especially to any who abuse or rob little children of their innocence. The term pervert is the preferred term of the tabloids and communities as a whole, addressing child pornographers or abusers. The sense of scandal is immense, and moral indifference is set aside on this particular issue. Which makes the image of Matthew 18 a very universal image. The idea that if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it's far better that a millstone is tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. And most of us would say, Amen to that, actually. Because it's very hard to think of anything that is more profoundly evil. But the issue here is not just about children. The issue here is about the little ones. And the little ones is a term that Jesus uses to describe his children in the kingdom of heaven. He has pretty strong things to say. Jesus becomes a sort of tabloid editor 
when it comes to this issue. And he says that if people are setting stumbling blocks, which is the New Living Translation, it goes something like this, how terrible it will be for anyone who causes others to sin. Temptation to do wrong is inevitable, but how terrible it will be for the person who does the tempting. As you read these verses, the challenge for us this morning is not to ask, in what ways have other people caused me to sin? It is to ask, in what ways have I, by abdicating my responsibility for my brother or sister, my fellow little one in the kingdom of heaven, caused one of these little ones to sin? Relationships in the kingdom of heaven are mutual, and there is mutual responsibility one for the other. Relationships in your work environment probably work on the basis of line management. Relationships and family tend to work in uh, regard to the parents and then the various combinations that come after. And I'll not get into that because those of you who are at the weekend know what kind of a mess I get myself into on that one. But the squashies and the binkies and all the rest of it. Relationships in society are often organized in terms of office, king, prime minister, whatever, chancellor, whatever the various rules are. But relationships in the church are mutual and are a mutual responsibility. There is, in front of me this morning, a room full of Jesus' little ones. Whose responsibility are they? Yours. Jesus says, pity help us if our attitudes, our behavior, our actions cause any of his little ones to fall away. How are we doing on our scale of 1 to 10? How are you doing in your sense of responsibility for the little ones? Not the little ones who just left us, but the little ones of Jesus. I hope you don't find that too patronizing. The little ones of Jesus that are sitting here this morning. We are actually each other's responsibility. And if we cause one another to sin, if we are the means of destroying one another's faith, then it would be better for us that a millstone were tied round our necks and we were thrown into the sea. That's Jesus' view.